You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first uh, topic that I'd like to discuss this week has to do with the continuing protests that have taken place over the last several months for and against the change in the way primarily that the Supreme Court is composed, as well as some other items. Uh, But the primary one has to do with reducing the power of the Supreme Court, which is not uh, consistent with the powers of the legislative branch. In America, for example, you have a legislature, an executive, and a judicial. In Israel, you only have a legislative and a judicial because the administrative is really part of the legislative. In the Knesset, the Congress of Israel, a group is chosen to be the government, the executive. So it's not a situation like in the United States where the problem has been that over the past 25 or 30 years, through various basic laws and other subtle changes, the judicial has taken over and amount of power is not in uh, equilibrium with the other branches of the government. That's what the big struggle is about now. But it's it's become increasingly clear that for those who have been protesting and demonstrating against judicial reform, The real issue is something else. It's an existential uh, problem, not a political one. What they're really addressing, as I understand it now, they're giving it some thought, is what kind of a nation should Israel be? Now, the choice has been set up rather starkly. Either the Western cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism of secular Tel Aviv, or the religious, theocratic, Torah-dominated world of Jerusalem. If you go to Tel Aviv today, I have grandchildren living in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv on Shabbat, you don't know that you're particularly in a Jewish country. Things pretty much continue like they do the rest of the week. Whereas Shabbat in Jerusalem is pretty much dominated by the spirit of Shabbat. I don't honestly know what it's like in other major cities like Haifa, but Tel Aviv and Jerusalem represent a dichotomy. Tel Aviv is secular, and you see that on Shabbat, and and, um, Jerusalem is religiously oriented, and you see it on Shabbat. It doesn't necessarily mean it's theocratic. But I have neighbors, for example, in Jerusalem who don't use their car on Shabbat. The streets are quiet, and you know that Shabbat is a different kind of day than the rest of the week. You do not know this in a place like Tel Aviv. So what we have here, I believe... It's a struggle and a failure of imagination. It's a failure of history, and I think it's a failure of self-awareness. 
the the uh, the real question is being asked by many people, particularly in the Tel Aviv area, is why why should we not embrace the sameness of the rest of the West? Why can't we be like the United States? That it, has it ever occurred to many of these people who are third generation Israelis that the only reason they're here to bemoan their fate in an actual Jewish state is because their very own ancestors chose to be a people apart, not reckoned among the nations. They chose to live in Israel because they wanted Israel to be different. Their grandparents and their great-grandparents wanted to establish a nation that was different than other nations. In the early part of the, late part of the, uh, 19th century and the early part of the 20th century when millions of Jews left Eastern Europe, most went to the United States and they created their own communities there, Jewish communities in the United States. It was only a small fraction that came here to Palestine because they wanted to set up a state that was essentially Jewish. Now, it is true the most of the leaders at that time were socialists, but they were Jewish socialists. They wanted to set up a socialist state, but a Jewish one. In other words, the bottom line was it was to be in Palestine, in Israel, something Jewish. So I, I really suspect that those people of 100 years ago would look highly askance at all this because people today are asking, for, are we sacrificing so much that the people in this generation are essentially turning their back on the people? The, and, and the people today who know nothing about their tradition and nothing about their history. And sadly, a great many of those on the barricades today have no awareness of any of Jewish history and especially none of Judaism. In fairness, they were raised by their parents to be new Jews. The difference was that their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were members of the founding generation of Israel that was deeply steeped in Jewish learning and literacy. Even if they had rejected religious observance, they were very Jewish. Their offspring, on the other hand, received no Jewish education and were raised with the contempt for the Jewish religion as an old world vestige that only succeeded in contributing to the marginalization and oppression of the Jews. That's how their children saw this. Now, today, these new Jews are prominently visible and visibly angry at protests they faced the prospect that the old secular Israel that they grew up in and defended in wars like the Yom Kippur War is in danger of disappearing. Secular Israel is in danger of disappearing. Now, the good news is that well-financed and media-covered acts of resistance, notwithstanding, the vast majority of Israeli Jews, I believe, do get the real message. They understand that they are a unique people. We are a unique people. 
not better, but possessed of the great gift of membership in the Jewish people, that contrary to the rules of history, indeed the laws of nature, we have managed to survive and reconstruct itself in our ancestral home. We were kicked out of here almost 2,000 years ago. No other nation has come back to its ancestral home. So the, uh, there are those who have studied the issue, and they say that there are two traje trajectories that define the upcoming younger generation that should be a source of optimism. One is that surveys consistently show that Israelis are becoming increasingly traditional, religiously traditional. The, the, this denote, denotes awareness and respect. And by the way, I think this is due to the fact that a large percentage of the population comes from the, uh, what we call the Oriental countries, or North Africa, or Iraq, uh, not from Europe. Uh, it's interesting, I remember when I uh, lived in Rehovo 50 years ago, one of the phenomena that I noticed was that uh, an Ashkenazi, a Jew who came from Europe, who was uh, religious, and his children uh, did not, were not religious, uh, would tell his kids, I don't want to see you on Shabbat if you have to drive to come to my house. A Sephardi, on the other hand, would say, I want to see you on Shabbat. I don't touch upon the subject of how you get to my house. I knew Sephardi Jews who were not uh, Sabbath observant, but they drove from Tel Aviv or other cities to visit their parents in Rehovot on Shabbat, and they parked two blocks away. They didn't park in front of their parents' house. The parents, to the parents, family was the most important thing. I want to see you on Shabbat. How you get there is something I don't touch upon. But an Ashkenazi would say, if you're going to come to my house on Shabbat by car, I don't want you at my house. In that sense, the Sephardim were more family-oriented than the Ashkenazi were. I say that as an Ashkenazi. It's something I witnessed and they were more, it was more important as far as deem, keep the family together. And it makes a huge difference. So it is true now that the Israelis are becoming increasingly traditional, and this denotes, as I said, awareness and respect. It means an appreciation of what it means to be Jewish, and a desire to make sure that one's children share that appreciation. In many respects, the rise of traditionalism mirrors the coming of age of Israel's Mizrahi community, Jews from Muslim lands, who brought with them a profound immersion in Jewish tradition, as well as a remarkable ability to tolerate the variations of that expression by their fellows. While these people, which we call the Mizrahim, Jews from Muslim lands, have no interest in a theocracy, they do have a profound interest, as I understand it, in making sure that Israel continues to reflect Jewish values, standing alone as a Jewish state. 
It has nothing to do with whether or not one is religiously observant. They say the Jewishness of the state is important. Now, there's another trajectory that the majority of the country is embracing, as I understand it, is, and that is the desire for Jewish sovereignty and Jewish control. One of the great lessons of the election back in November 2022 was the recognition of how strong the desire of voters was for Israel to assert control over the territory and its destiny. Now, this is not the politics, as I understand it, of fear, nor of accommodation with hostile forces. It is not the policy of Peace Now or Oslo or others offering to give back the Temple Mount, for example, in a vain attempt to create some kind of calm and acceptance. Younger Jews today, as I understand it, the, the, it's been characterized as the third generation of Israelis. They see Zionism as a work in progress. That's a key word, work in progress, but a successful work in progress. They, they want to go to strengthen themselves, and that means building and securing Israel both on the Mediterranean coast and in the hills of areas like the Shomron for Jewish sovereign life. They are historically aware of being Jewish. Now, the, uh, the worldview presented by the, a great many of the protesters, particularly the older ones, is a, a world of defeat and weakness. They have anointed the Supreme Court as their saviors, oblivious or uncaring of the reality that the court has become a tainted institution. It's bloated with its own oligarchic um, um, omnipotence. The, the, all the Orwellian doublespeak in the world cannot change the fact that the protesters are clinging to hope that true democratic decision-making can be thwarted that the demographic clock can be stopped, and that a world that has passed can somehow be recovered. It can't. We, we are in Israel is 75 years old, and we went from a certain ideology that brought the country into being to a severance from that ideology. And I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about the understanding that there has to be a Jewish state. And the Jewish state should reflect its Jewishness. In other words, let's put it this way. I, I, I said this on my program before. Uh, for a period of time when I was uh, working in the United States, I was living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. In Cherry Hill, New Jersey, the buses, the public transportation, did not operate on Sunday. Now, that doesn't mean that the people living there, the Christians primarily, of course, living there, 
was so super religious, there's no reason why a Christian can't drive on Sunday. But the people who live in, lived there wanted Sunday to be different than the rest of the week. They wanted the traffic to be different than the rest of the week. They wanted to feel when they went outside that it was Sunday. And that was important to them. And that's the same thing here in Israel. We have to know this is a Jewish country that Shabbat is different than the rest of the week. That feeling, by the way, uh, is what we have here in Jerusalem. People, in the, I have neighbors who are not uh, observant. When I say not observant, I mean they don't keep the ritual laws. To say that somebody's not observant is really a, a misnomer. Most people I, that I know don't steal, they don't cheat, and they don't beat up on orphans, orphans and widows. They, when somebody says, I'm not religious, I don't keep Shabbat, you're plenty, plenty religious if you're a good person. Forget Shabbat for a moment. When I, here in Jerusalem, you know it is Shabbat. In Tel Aviv, you don't have that same feeling. And I think that that, that is an issue. Living in a Jewish country, the only Jewish country in the world, the only Jewish country after 2,000 years, you have to walk in the street and know it's a Jewish country. Even if you're not particularly observant, all the little details, when you walk outside in the morning, you have to feel like you did in New Jersey. They knew it was Sunday in New Jersey. And you have to know it is Shabbat here in Israel. That the, the truth of the matter is, I feel sorry for those Jews because they're bereft of the awareness of themselves. They have no idea of who they really are and the magnificence of their heritage. Now, those who do have that awareness and cherish that heritage must make sure that we persevere, trying our best to explain and expose that heritage to those who know it not. That is our responsibility, and we owe it, not only to our ancestors, but also to ourselves, to see the inescapable importance of the mission to build, secure, and cherish a Jewish state in the land of Israel that reflects the fact that it is a Jewish state. That is really important. Again, it doesn't mean you have to keep all the, all the commandments. You have to know when you go out into the street that you are in a Jewish state. And that particularly reflects itself in the manner in which we, we uh, observe or are aware of the Shabbat. But during the, during the, it's interesting, I think during, during the course of the week, even if you're a person who keeps all the little, uh, little things dealing with religion, you don't think about these things all the time. You know, there's something you do. It's a way of life. That in itself, by the way, can be a problem if you do things without thinking. But that's a story unto itself. But when you go out in the street on Shabbat, you have to know that you are in a Jewish country, the first Jewish country after 2,000 years. And I think that's important. No matter how you are observing, you are of all the other mitzvot and commandments. So there is no either or. 
There is only a Jewish state of Israel. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a number of topics in this portion of the program. First, I want to talk about the Tel Aviv Light Rail. The city of Tel Aviv was founded, I believe, in the year 1908. There were Jews living in the city of Yafo, which is a city that's more than... uh, 3,000 years old, and they decided back in 1908 to purchase some land north of the city along the seacoast and make a new city, which they called Tel Aviv. Now, 113 years later, Tel Aviv is a major metropolis. Really, what are the, believe, really, what are the major metropolis? metropolis, or metropoli, if that's the word, in around the world. They keep putting up new buildings. Every time I have occasion to go to Tel Aviv, I'm shocked at the number of uh, buildings going up. You see cranes and derricks and building all the time. And in, in, in more than slightly more than 50 years that I've been here, it's completely changed its appearance, which includes the traffic, which is unbelievably bad. And so they've decided to build a light rail, which they started building, if I'm not mistaken, about 50 years ago. And now the first parts of it are ready. Now, Tel Aviv... uh, so among the cities in Israel, the 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 old uh, the old saying used to be, "You go to Haifa for work, you go to Tel Aviv for pleasure, and you go for Jerusalem to study and think." So it's a really busy metropolis, and now they have a high-speed line, and the question is. Will the Tel Aviv light rail travel on Shabbat or not? Now, if I'm not mistaken, I could check it out, but if I'm not mistaken, there is public transportation in Haifa on Shabbat, and there is not in, uh, in Jerusalem. And up to now, there has been no uh, public transportation on Shabbat in Tel Aviv. So they want this train to run on Shabbat. So the first thing we have to understand is to recognize what is the issue. The, by the way, if you look at the uh, historically, Tel Aviv is not 
part of the original Eretz Yisrael, or it belonged to the Philistines. Now, um, now, uh, one can make a case for saying Jerusalem's a holy city, it's been a holy city for thousands of years, it's the center of the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and it's been around for a long time. And uh, we, it, it's interesting, uh, the uh, Arabs referred to Jerusalem, either they call it Jerusalem al-Quds, or they just call it al-Quds. Al-Quds means the Holy One. In the Hebrew, the word is Kadosh. So there's some logic to not operating public transportation in Jerusalem in order to uphold the principle of holiness. Now, on the other hand, Tel Aviv is a new city, a little over 100 years old, and it has a basically secular population who should not be coerced to keep the Sabbath. Some several, some level of Sabbath observance, perhaps, but not to a level that the overwhelming majority of the population does not describe to. Now, now, Tel Aviv is on the beach, and a, and there's very little parking place in Tel Aviv. Many, many. Many of the buildings in the center of the city were built when people didn't have cars, and therefore they didn't provide parking place. Now the new areas have uh, parking places, but not the old ones. A lot of people didn't have car, private cars, and still today, a lot of people in Tel Aviv do not have private cars, and they're totally dependent on public transportation. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the government have the right to deny to these people the option of traveling on Shabbat? And if travel becomes necessary, the should we place a financial burden on them by forcing them to use taxis? Now, the, the problem is there's a solution there. It's a Jewish city in a Jewish country, but it's essentially a secular city. So we can say, let those who wish to ride on, on the light rail on Shabbat do so, and those who don't, don't have to. I know living in America, for example, the... Uh, Buses passed me on what I called Shabbat. It was Saturday. I just got used to it. Question is, how can we resolve this issue in within the framework of a Jewish law, if it's possible? Jewish law means halacha. Now, there are those who are suggesting that riding the light rail on Shabbat should be free. That's interesting. If it's free, even a religious person can get on and get off. There's no charge to ride the light rail, and everybody knows so. And then it's, you know, there's this concept in um, 
halacha in Jewish law called marit ayin. Marit ayin roughly translated means, means what the eye sees. In other words, you're not allowed to do something on Shabbat, which if someone sees it, will think that you are uh, violating the Sabbath. If I see a guy with a, wearing a skull cap driving in a car on Shabbat uh, with his wife in the front seat with him, I automatically assume that his wife is pregnant and he's taking her to the hospital. Marit ayin is when you see something and you're not quite sure what it means. So if there's no charge for traveling the right rail and anybody can get on, so then if you get on, even a religious person who gets on the uh, travel on the on the uh, light rail, is won't be seen as doing something appearing disallowed by Jewish law. They won't think that somebody paid a fare to travel on Shabbat if it's free. And there's another thing. As the light rail stops at every station, there would be no need for anyone to signal the driver to stop and therefore no risk of electricity being activated by the riders. You know, it's an interesting thing, and I've had this experience. I'll be in a, in, in a hotel, and I'll be stuck there on Shabbat, and I'm on a high floor, and I can't walk up. So what I do is I wait until someone not Jewish is getting into the elevator. I get in with them, and I get up to get off near a floor, which is near the one I want to go to, preferably a higher one. I mean, you can also get stuck in a situation where you're on the 30th floor, and the other person who gets into the elevator with you is getting off the 24th floor, that still leads you 10 floors to walk up, but that's, that's not talking about a situation like that. In other words, when you're living in a country that's not Jewish, you can take advantage of what others are doing in order to avoid yourself violating the Sabbath. They, now, it's interesting. They, you could even, if you have a, um, a light rail that's traveling on Shabbat, and it stops at every single station, so you don't have to, to do anything to make the train stop or go. And at each station, you and it's, you could have free travel. You could have entrances. You just simply walk through. So there, you would avoid the need to use the electronically actuated access points. Then you can say, all right, we're going to work it out. That the train is free, the train stops at every stop. Then you ask yourself, what about the drivers? So uh, none of the drivers of the trains that run on Shabbat have to be Jewish. Uh, that is a pretty creative situation. If I had to the, the, um, choose who the drivers would be, I would choose Druze. D-R-U-Z-E. Jews are a non-Jewish community. They're not Christians. They're not Muslims. They serve in the army. They're loyal to the state, which could just as well be uh, uh, drivers of public transportation. 
So you could have a transport system available on Shabbat free of charge to all who want to ride it, no need to use anything electrical to enter or leave the stations or to pull a, a button or push a button or pull a switch to request that the driver stop, stop automatically. So the escalators, for example, at those stations that are underground or up on a bridge, the escalators would be in continuous operation and the train drivers would not be Jewish. This is a solution to the problem of the of the high-speed rail on Shabbat in uh, Tel Aviv, but that's been suggested. Suggested. It's not my idea. It's been suggested by a gentleman named Sherwin Pomerantz, uh, who uh, is, a, uh, is a businessman and very involved in various organizations here in here here in Israel. The, he, he says that he would bet that even members of the religious community who are confident enough in their religious observance would also ultimately use the train on Shabbat. Why? They want to visit friends, they want to have a Shabbat meal across town, or, uh, or whatever. Now, obviously, a solution like that would be, there'd be a financial cost. It would be expensive. Energy used in running the system and the payroll costs. But according to Sherwin Pomerantz, and I agree with him, it would be a very small price to pay for a solution that would neutralize the fact that so many people are upset about public transportation in Tel Aviv or Shabbat. Now, you can take issue with that. People, this suggested solution should be looked at by the experts in halacha and think about it. It, 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 it could work and it would remove more, remove another irritant from what's happening in Israel. Israel is a wonderful country, and when possible, we have to remove those things that cause irritation. The, uh, it, it's interesting, if you really put your mind to it, we need religious leadership that'll solve these problems. The, uh, there were a lot of problems related to Shabbat for example, that occur in hospitals, in public places, and the, the best minds have been used to resolve these problems when the things cannot be avoided. Hospitals have to operate on Shabbat. Emergency systems have to operate on Shabbat. But you do them with a limit on the amount of violation of the Shabbat. And all these things can be worked out. There's no reason why they can't work out the issue of public transportation in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv on Shabbat so that it reduces the friction between the observing community 
and those who do not observe the Shabbat. Because the one thing we don't need in this country is more friction between, between the various communities. There's enough friction right now. So Sherwin Pomerantz has come up with an idea, and people should really look into it because it's important. We have to live in peace with each other, and we have to work out these kinds of problems. I want to go on to a very, very different uh, subject, or one which I think is important. Uh, I saw an article. Uh, the, the article appeared in the back pages of the Hebrew press. It also appeared way back in the back pages of the English press. But I think it's something that's important. And that is the following. A 98-year-old German man who was accused of working as a guard at a Nazi concentration camp is being charged with 3,300 counts of accessory to murder. It's very interesting. In a, in a town north of Frankfurt in Germany, the local prosecutors are accusing this man of having, and I quote, of having supported the cruel and malicious killing of thousands of prisoners as a member of the SS Guard Detail at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp near Berlin between July 1943 and February 1945. Two years, near and a half. This is according to the Associated Press. The prosecutors, prosecution didn't release the name of the suspect. Now, they did a psychiatric report on the suspect in October of 2022, and they determined that he is partially fit to stand trial. Despite his advanced age, he was younger than 21 at the time of the crimes, the suspect is being charged under juvenile criminal law at a regional court which holds jurisdiction over his place of residence. Suspects accused as adults for Nazi crimes are typically tried in courts with jurisdiction over the location of the crime. But in this case, he's tried in the, in the, in the area where he lives. Now, what is happening now, and this is important, I think, prosecutors and investigators are trying to hold the last living Nazis accountable for their crimes because their crimes are crimes. That's true. These suspects are nearing the end of their lives. Uh, but the German government is helping to find these people. The, uh, incidentally, there was another guy named Schütz, another guard at Sachsenhausen, was the oldest Nazi camp guard ever put on trial for his crimes, and he was convicted last year at the age of 101. 
and he was found guilty of being complicit in the mass murder of more than 3,500 prisoners. He was tried as an adult. It was held at a court in Brandenburg, the German state where Sachsenhausen was located. He was sentenced to five years in prison and died at 102 while waiting for an appeal. Also, back in 2021, another guy who was 95 years old was put on trial of complicity in the murder of 10,000 people. What, what did this, it was a woman. What did she do? What had she done? She was a secretary at a concentration camp. Now, the precedent in German law that guards, uh, that guards and Nazi death camps could be tried for their crimes even without evidence of a specific killing. They set this rule back in 2011 and they can convict former concentration camp guards. The famous one, I think, if the rest of us will remember, was a guy named John Damianuk, who was kicked out of the United States when they found out he lied about his background when he entered the United States. It turns out the charges of murder and accessory to murder are not subject to a statute of limitations under German law. And that's important. And I say we have to respect the Germans for doing this kind of thing. If you're 100 years old and you killed or involved with the death of tens of thousands of people 80 years ago, it doesn't matter. And the German law allows these people to be convicted. And I think that's a good thing. I'll be back after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem, inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show. Pull up a chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together, we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. As we approach the Jewish New Year, I think it's time to sum up some of the things that are happening, uh, not just what happened over the last year, but in general, the situation we are here in, uh, here in Israel. Uh, one of the things is that the, uh, no matter how you slice it, The Palestinian Arab leaders have consistently refused to recognize Israel's very right to exist. It's been that way since before the founding of the state. It's that way today after the Oslo agreements, and it seems to be a natural fact of life. You have to ask yourself why. Is it something national? Is it something religious? What's the basis of this hate of Israel? They insist that all of what was Palestine belongs to them, and therefore there is no way to make any kind of compromise with Israel. Israel must not exist in any part of the land 
that they call Palestine. That's from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, at least. And it's what's in their covenants and in their charters, the PLO covenant, the Hamas charter. Still, logically, they could take whatever Israel offered and do what they wanted later. They had chances to make an agreement, accept what they could accept, and then continue to fight afterwards, but they never gave up on anything, nothing. There was, the answer was provided, apparently, by Henry Kissinger's perspective of the war in Vietnam. Uh, this is pointed out recently. Kissinger said the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong fighting in their own country needed merely to keep on being forces sufficiently strong to dominate the population after the United States tired of the war. We fought, we, the United States, fought a military war. Our opponents, the Vietnamese, fought a political war. We sought physical attrition. Our opponents, the Vietnamese, aimed for our psychological, psychological exhaustion and in the process, we lost, we, the Americans, lost sight of one of the cardinal maxims of guerrilla war. The guerrilla wins if he does not lose. The conventional army loses if it does not win. And that is the strategy of the terrorist organizations like the PLO, the Hamas, and Jihad. As they see it, they're in a war of attrition against Israel, which requires constant terrorism and no compromises. As long as Israel does not destroy them and instead negotiates with them, they see this as winning, and they continue to receive support from all around the world. Now, in Israel, the Israeli Arab political parties Despite their alliance with organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, decided to become members of the Knesset, not only for the financial rewards, but also to support Israel concessions in the Oslo Accords, and legitimize people like Yasser Arafat, who is nothing more than an arch-terrorist. Although those criticized by Hamas the PLO argued that they should take advantage of every opportunity to consolidate power as a tactical move while continuing to support terrorism and promote anti-Semitism not as a tactic, but as a strategy. So, in their view, the Arab population of Israel will increase and become more powerful and influential in Israeli politics and in Israeli society. They will continue to demand ending the so-called occupation of Palestine and the removal of Jewish communities, what they call West Bank settlements, that are illegal according to international law, as well as the right to self-determination as a sovereign state. 
The two-state solution is what they talk about, and the right of return. The in the uh, it's interesting. Who who are they talking about when they say the right of return? They're talking about to turn to Israel for Arabs in all these refugee facilities sponsored by the United Nations and located in Syria and Lebanon and even in Israel. So the Palestinian uh, Authority and the Palestinian Liberation Organization continues its pain for slave policy, and all of this is supported by America, by Canada, the European Union, United Nations agencies, and others around the world. So Israel is pressured to make more concessions. There are predictions that Israel's society will disintegrate due to internal disputes over how to deal with the Palestinian issue, especially what's called the occupation. Terrorism will create a national despair, they believe, that will destroy any sense of well-being and security for Israelis. As a result, Israel will become more isolated and more and weaker, and Jews will become demoralized and emigrate away from the state of Israel. Weary of constant terrorist attacks, Israelis will give up in the form of attrition and leaving the country. In addition, on top of this, as Muslim populations in America and Europe increase and become more powerful politically, they will exercise greater influence in the European countries on their governments to support Arab and Palestinian demands for the two-state solution. This is evident as organizations such as the American Muslim Council and the Council on American-Islamic Relations are feeded and carried on shoulders by politicians and security agencies in the United States and in Europe. The, the government of Israel and the Israeli Defense Forces do not seem to understand that we are in a war and have been in a war for more than a century and a half. And thanks to those who brought us the Oslo Accords, those Israeli politicians who brought us the Oslo Accords, one of the biggest mistakes in history, and for whom they rewarded all kinds of award, rewards, and the expulsion of the Jews from the Gaza Strip and northern Samaria, we ignore or are confused about what's happening, and there is not a coherent strategy against what is being done against us. Moreover, left-wing critics of the government here in Israel and the protest, protest movement is going on now, against judicial reforms have undermined national solidarity. To undermine national solidarity is a terrible thing, really. Instead of offering solutions, they attack the government, especially ministers that they don't like. Now, it's interesting. Among those who were attacked the most, members of the government, are Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betsalo Smutridge. 
I have my own opinion about them. I think that they become uh, powerful in the government, and they're very immature politically. At any rate, however, Ben Gvir himself has defined what the conflict about. It's not about a two-state solution and the Palestinian humanitarian and civil rights, and it's not about the settlements. What it is about, the conflict, is about our safety and security. It's about ending Palestinian terrorism and the Arab-Muslim agenda, aided by the European Union and the UN agencies and others whose agenda is to destroy Israel. That is the agenda of the PLO and the other, uh, the, and the PA, the Palestinian Authority. They want to destroy Israel. Some, um, they, they, there are a lot of Jewish and Israeli leaders who take issue with Ben Gvir. He doesn't behave properly, even though he's a government minister, but he is a voice, really, can be, he can be seen as the voice of the silent. He is the voice of those who essentially have no voice. And he is the voice of the victims of terrorism, which takes a lot of courage. And he's focused on what Kissinger observed. When you are in a war, you cannot allow the enemy to initiate attacks and then respond. The enemy needs to pay a high price. You have to take the initiative against your enemy. You cannot allow him to have the initiative and you only respond. The enemy needs to pay a high price. And you must win decisively. It can, we're, uh, we're in a, a long-ending war, and that war has to be ended decisively. Israel can and must win this war because our survival depends on it. And so as we approach the new year, it's time to take a good look at our situation, who we are, who our enemies are, and what we have to do put an end to the simmering conflict, which right now has no end in sight, and is a very difficult way to live, and we should put an end to this resistance from the Arabs and let them know who it is who owns this land. If they want to live here in peace, that's fine. If not, there are other solutions. And I think one of the problems is that our government really has no policy to put an end to this never-ending struggle. Uh, I'm not a politician. Uh, I don't have an easy solution. There are no easy solutions when you have two populations within live, living within the same area to want to control that area. In order to avoid this never-ending struggle, one side has to make a conclusive victory, get it over with, so the other side knows that it has no chance whatsoever. 
Unfortunately, I don't think our government understands this. So I just wanted to review this in my own mind, perhaps, and uh, thinking out loud for the listeners. In a sense, and along these same lines, there is a tremendous violence today in Israel's Arab society, internal Arab violence, not just against Jews, but in particular Arabs against Arabs. A lot of the Arab towns in Israel are really run by by uh, murderous groups who have taken over. This year will be remembered as the bloodiest year in Arab society in Israel, and apparently it's getting worse. There are more murders every day, and things are really bad, never been this bad before. The state of Israel is a multifaceted mosaic. An Arab society is an integral part of it right now. The Arab society is drowning in a sea of blood, and it's getting worse, if if that's even possible. Many families are destroyed. There's a complete loss of personal security and a terrible fear of walking around the city centers of the Arab cities. These are the facts, and this is admitted to by Arab leaders. For example, the imam of the of a mosque in Qaqasim came out with a special plea to stop the violence in the Arab sector. The violence in the Arab society is the result of an internal social and economic crisis that's been intensified dramatically because the our government apparently has neglected the needs of the Arab society and it is part of our state economically, medically, and socially. As long as there are Arabs living in Israel, we have to see to it that their society is a healthy one. As a matter of fact, you have to remember how hundreds of Arab doctors and nurses were worked during the COVID epidemic. So there is a very serious problem. At the moment, we are destined to live together on the same piece of land, and the responsibility is first and foremost on our government. This crisis in Arab society will not be solved very quickly. There are very profound issues that gave rise to the crisis, and they need long-term treatment. They have to restore a sense of personal security to ordinary families in the Arab society. What we really need is massive law enforcement against crime, against violent gangs, and against reckless driving, which goes on in the Arab cities of Israel. And the Arab leadership has to cooperate with the government. 
the it's it's a very sad business because there's tremendous violence on the Arab street, and crime is not found only in Arab society. It essentially affects Israeli society as a whole. So we have to make significant educational changes for the younger generation of the Arab society as long as they're going to be there. So their, their role model is not the criminal, rather the student, the teacher, or the cleric. That's a, 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 it's a very serious problem. The Jewish religious leaders should be involved in this because the, the influence on government decision-making can greatly contri contribute to reducing the rising level of violence in Arab society in Israel. They, they should have a well-thought-out plan that will institute drastic changes. It must incorporate resources for young unemployed people in Arab society. They have to collect the thousands of illegal weapons in Arab society, and they need a police force with the capability to solve all these murder cases. So, the, uh, there is violence raging, raging in the Arab society in Israel, and something must be done about it, because it's not simply a problem of the Arabs. It's a problem that spills over into all of Israeli society, and not enough has been done about it. It's a, it's a problem for the future of the state. As long as the Arabs are going to dwell among us, we have to see that their society is not violent and that they are loyal to the state of Israel. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk, from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Something happened in Israel about a week and a half ago, and uh, I do not know if it got much to play in the foreign press, but here in Israel, it was, it was really a shocker. Israel is home to some 30,000 refugees around 90% of whom are seeking asylum from either Eritrea or Sudan. When they had a riot last week, and I have to admit that when I read that the rioters were from Eritrea, I had to look it up on the map. It's in Africa, not far from Ethiopia. Now, of those 30,000 refugees, Less than 1% of those refugees are recognized by the State of Israel 
and it contributes to one of the lowest refugee acceptance rates in the Western world. This is despite the Israel's ratified the United Nations Refugee Convention of 1951 and the Protocols of 1964. Now, people from Eritrea make up a majority of the population of African asylum seekers, and most of them, if not all of them, are in South Park, downtown Tel Aviv. And uh, apparently the country itself, Eritrea, is run by a dictator, it has an obligatory forced military enlistment, and it's enlisted by the United Nations Human Rights Council, Amnesty International, and other human rights groups as a country where there are slavery-like conditions. So that is why there are a lot of these Eritreans here in Israel, and particularly in Tel Aviv. Now, when they rioted last week, it resembled an urban battlefield. Hundreds of men armed with sticks, rocks, bottles, and other improvised weapons descended on a hall in South Tel Aviv where the Eritrean embassy was hosting an event marking what's called Revolution Day, which commemorates the start of the Eritrean War of Independence against Ethiopia back in 1961. Now, interestingly enough, here in downtown Tel Aviv, at least 160 people were injured in these clashes between supporters and opponents of the government there, and they, the regime's opponents tried for hours to prevent the event from going ahead, and some, some 50 police officers were wounded in this terrible violence, and the police were forced to use stun grenades and live fire when they came under attack. Local businesses were burned and looted, residents were trapped in their homes, unable to get out, and public property was destroyed in the tens of thousands of shekels. Now, this apparently was not a spontaneous riot. Both the opponents and the supporters of the regime there were dressed for the protest. They were, wore blue and red t-shirts. Uh, last week, an organization representing the Eritrean asylum seekers had warned the police of likely bloodshed and urged that the event not be granted approval to go ahead. The anti-regime protesters claimed that the Eritrean embassy representing the government there is spying on those who fled that country and are seeking asylum in other countries like in Israel. Now, Israel is not the only country that has seen such a clash. Last month, for example, German police were forced to use riot control tactics. Hundreds of anti-regime protesters descended on an Eritrean cultural festival in a place in Germany. Nearly 100 protesters were arrested by the German authorities during the violence, 
and more than 25 German police officers were injured, and the same thing happened in Holland. Now, apparently, there are large numbers of asylum seekers from Eritrea, including U.S. and Canada, and Canada, but they barred, banned similar events for fear of riots. Now, Israel has more than 25,000 Eritrean asylum seekers, according to an organization that aids refugees. The government considers the vast majority of them to be illegal immigrants because they entered the country by infiltration. Most of them via the Egyptian border in Sinai before the Israeli government erected a fence. They completed the fence in 2014 in order to block the wave of infiltrators from Africa. Now, what happened is, after this huge riot in Tel Aviv, our Prime Minister Netanyahu urgently convened a special ministerial task force to evaluate ways to deal with what's happening. The the way uh, Netanyahu uh, spoke about it, he said that what had happened crossed the red line. Well, obviously, a, a riot by Africans in Tel Aviv that is crossing a red line. So, uh, so what they're considering doing is kicking out those who took part in these riots. The, uh, the, the Prime Minister further said, I would also like this forum to prepare a complete and updated plan to repatriate all the remaining illegal infiltrators from the state of Israel. Now, obviously, such a move is not easy. It has many diplomatic, legal, and domestic ramifications. And by the way, I've, uh, it's many years since I, uh, I myself wandered into the south part of Tel Aviv. But I remember years ago, especially around the old uh, the bus station, the, central, the old central bus station, it was like going to a foreign country. It was like going to a country in Africa. You didn't feel that you were in Tel Aviv. You didn't feel like you were in Israel. You were surrounded by African natives. So uh, at a time when when tensions within Israeli society itself are strained because of the judicial reform and all kind of protest movements, to add to this, Intra-Eritrean violence was seen as is is terrible. We have our own problems here. We're trying to settle, and suddenly we have a section of a city of Tel Aviv being essentially involved in an African problem. So uh, the the uh, the much of the impetus for the government's proposed reform stems from the High Court's overturning of excessive laws designed to handle the issue of illegal immigrants. The, uh, by the way, they, they, there is something called the Cholot Detention Center in the Negev, and a lot of these uh, people have been deported or imprisoned there. So the, the real problem with Tel Aviv was that the police were really unprepared for a level of violence 
even though apparently early intelligence and the experience of the migrant community said that this is going to happen. Now, any kind of violence like that is obviously unacceptable. And ultimately, of course, the blame lies with the protesters themselves. However, it should be remembered that the majority of migrants in Israel, including members of this Eritrean community, are not seeking violence. Every effort must be made to ensure that what happens is not exploited in a way that leads further lawlessness and chaos. But it turned out to be a real shocker Saturday a week ago when suddenly all these Africans were rioting against each other. The, uh, by the way, uh, the, uh, some of these rioters were transferred to administration detention uh, because uh, they found some had illegal far, far, uh, far, uh, firearms. And uh, these classic clashes, uh, uh, as I said, there were about 160 people wounded. So uh, the, it's interesting. The Ben Gvir, the national security minister, uh, had to uh, had wanted to have transfer the rioters, prevent their quick release under more strident charging requirements, get more than uh, administrative detention. But uh, the transfer of rioters to administrative detention uh, is something that's being done, and. Uh, the police really haven't stood up to this uh, this problem. These foreigners rioting in uh, Tel Aviv. So it's interesting, by the way. The right to protest doesn't exist itself in Eritrea, and if you try to uh, riot there or protest, you probably uh, you probably get killed by the authorities. It's, it's interesting. The uh, why is someone who is pro-regime that in Eritrea? Why why would they stay in Israel rather than back home in their home? Because one of the problems they have outside of being a dictatorship there is a lack of religious freedom. There are specific religious groups there being stripped of citizenship, according to the. Uh, a report by the United States Human Rights Commission, for example, various people of religions there were stripped of their citizenship and they're not allowed to ex exercise basic rights. In addition, whether someone is for or against the government, they're still subject to human rights violations that have caused so many to flee for their lives, even if they're in favor of the government there. So, uh, so it, it's we, in other words, this African problem is now in the downtown part of Tel Aviv. The, uh, the there's an organization called the African Refugee Development Center, which is a, a non-government organization here in Israel that provides resources to Tel Aviv's African asylum seekers. Israel upholds the principle of non-refoulement, which acknowledging that some asylum seekers are in danger is a return to their home countries. In turn, the state policy toward these asylum seekers 
is one of temporary non-deportation, officially returned to his group protection. And uh, so, in other words, these people come here, they say they're, they're afraid to be in their own country, and they're, 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 they're officially protected here, what's called group protection. So the only right this status gives them is a temporary stay, uh, that they don't get deported, and they have to renew their visas every three to six months. Now, the, uh, the, 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 obviously we don't, we don't want all these foreigners here in, 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 in Tel Aviv. So the, what happened a week ago could lead to the deportation for many. And, and if you deport them back to their own country, they might get killed there by the government. So uh, the, uh, the, the what happened in Tel Aviv is uh, it's really very bad. So uh, what's happening is, if you if you think about the organizers of the event are trying here in Tel Aviv are trying to transfer an internal political dispute in their retreat to other countries. And that's something we don't need that. And there's all kind of passions that might get out of control. The problem is, by the way, that Israeli police simply didn't take the precautionary measures. The uh, and the, the it, it's a bad situation. You know, the uh, the the that country is a small nation that has a lot of armaments. And all kind of embargoes against them. That little nation picks fights with its neighbors, and uh, it apparently is a very unpleasant place. The the the, the uh, newspaper in England, The Economist, reported that the South, uh, that Eritrea and North Korea have a lot in common. Uh, both are one-party states whose rulers kill their critics, and and both both are closed economies, no private sector, and uh, it's a dictatorship. So, uh, now it, what happened finally was, as I mentioned before, the Israeli police fired at the protesters. So, uh, the for a whole week, the representatives of the Eritrean leadership contacted the police. Uh, in order to attempt to cancel the embassy event and prevent what happened. Apparently, the police ignored them, and now the police were firing stun grenades at them. So, uh, it's a serious problem. Regardless of which side of Eritrea it is, Eritreans stand politically, the uh, it, it, people in Tel Aviv cannot live in peace without fear for personal safety if these foreigners are going to riot against each other. And again, I don't know if this got headlines in the general press. It, it appeared in the, the Israeli press the day after the riots occurred, Saturday a week ago, and then it got quiet. So it's a problem that exists. Uh, hopefully it will not get worse. I'll keep an eye on it to see what's happening, but it, uh, it's something that, with all the problems we have here in Israel, imported problems from Africa 
is the last thing that we need. And finally, I'll close the program with something which is really, really under the headlines. There are plans to turn Hitler's birth house into a police station, and it's turned a small Austrian town upside down. The town is called Branau am Inn, and the local administration announced last week that it's concrete, it has plans to put the building where Hitler was born to practically use, promising to house a police station there, a police training program there. So the, the, the design is about to begin. Local citizens and leaders are not in agreement with the plan. The building, which is constructed in the early mid-19th century, has become a site of pilgrimage for Hitler supporters, despite the fact that the Austrian government expropriated the building in 2017, reportedly in part to prevent the site from becoming a magnet for neo-Nazis. That's quite interesting. As a matter of fact, to stop these gatherings of neo-Nazis, the town placed a monument in front of the house consisting of a block of granite from the Mauthausen concentration camp quarry, inscribing a message in memory of the victims of fascism. So the, 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 the people living there are making all kind of comments. The, uh, the, it's very sad. The, the, the police station would include the human rights training program. And it would, uh, it would, of course, be just the opposite of what Hitler stood for. But the plan has uh, not received wide popular support. The, uh, the, there are those who said they prefer to see a, an entity move in that would focus solely on National Socialism remembrance. Very few agree with the plan used to, for, for police in, enforcement. So there's all kinds of arguments now taking place about what to do with Hitler's birthplace. So uh, the truth of the matter is they checked out the history. Hitler was born there, and he actually lived there exactly two months. So you can ask, why is it so special? They already deal with Hitler on many levels in organizations and museums. So, uh, by the way, the Austrian's interior ministry estimated re resign will cost about 20 million euros. And on the police station, uh, it, uh, it should be a district police headquarters. So, if all these years after Nazism, Hitler's birth house is uh, causing controversy. That's something that's way under the headlines, but I think uh, it's something of interest. What to do with Hitler's birthplace. Uh, at, at any rate, I'll be back next time. Thanks again for listening.